This is Andy Wakefield and this is the Andy Wakefield Podcast. This is a place where stories are told that have never been heard before. Welcome to the Andy Wakefield Podcast. My name is Laurie Gregory and it's my privilege to be here today with Andy Wakefield. Hi, Andy. Hi, Laurie. It's great to be back. Um, episode two. Episode two. Here we go. This is not <laughs> going to be an easy one, guys. You're going to have to pay attention. This is... Uh, the value of this podcast is that we have an opportunity to tell stories that have not been told before, that are not known to the public, and this is one. So this is a story that goes back to my time at the Royal Free Hospital, and it's a story about how to very effectively discredit someone in public, not me on this occasion, but how to render someone untouchable, beyond reach, uh, beyond any use, in this case, to the omnibus autism proceedings, the OAP, which took place in America, involving 5,500 children who had autism following vaccination. What year was that, Andy, about? You know, uh, when was the OAP? I'm terrible on dates. I'm so sorry. I'm terrible on dates. Early 2000s-ish? 2007. And this is a story. Let me introduce some characters for you. Firstly, there is Professor John O'Leary. Professor John O'Leary is um, a scientist. He's a pathologist. He now works in Dublin. And at the time that I was introduced to him, he was working at Columbia in New York. He was a visiting scientist. John was a world expert in molecular biology, in particular the molecular detection of viruses in very, very, very small amounts in diseased tissues. And I was introduced to him by the father of a child with autism, also a a scientist. And I went to Columbia to lecture to John and to ask him if he could apply his expertise, his technology, to the detection of measles virus in the diseased intestine of children with autism. Now, the technology that he used uh, and, and please don't worry about the details of this, is called TACMAN PCR. And it was a, I hesitate to say, sort of quantitative way of measuring tiny, tiny, tiny amounts of viral genetic material or other genetic material in, in this case, diseased tissues. It was a very sophisticated, is very sophisticated technology. And John was working with the company who developed it. Such was his reputation and his expertise. And he was the lab- one of the laboratories that was being used to test and optimize this technology. So TACMAN PCR, a way of detecting and quantifying, at least to some extent, tiny, tiny amounts of viral material. And so I went to talk to John to ask him if he would get involved in this. And together we designed a study, and that study was to be conducted between the Coombe Women's Hospital in Dublin, where John was taking up the job of professor, and a character called Michael Olston at the Scripps Clinic in California. Now, for those who know the Scripps, this is one of the world's foremost uh, research institutes. Uh, up on the uh, the cliffs of um, 
of, uh, of Santa, Santa Monica. No, no, it's outside. It's outside San Diego, La Jolla, California. Thank you That's very much. So, we have a winner. <laughs> the Scripps Clinic, the Scripps Institute, is is a former one well, of the, the world's foremost research institutes in in, in La Jolla, beautiful La Jolla, up on the cliffs there, in uh, just north of San Diego, and. Um, that's the, the basis of that what we had here is two really eminent scientists, Dr. Michael Oldstone in La Jolla and Professor John O'Leary in Dublin. And we were going to do a study together to uh, look at the detection of measles vaccine virus in diseased tissues. Not the wild virus. You're talking about just the vaccine-derived the vaccine measles virus. virus. Okay. Absolutely. So... The story really began in the U.S. Congress. It began, I think it's the, th the third time, the second or third time I testified before the government's oversight committee on the issue of vaccines and autism. And I was there and John O'Leary was not. And the chairman was Dan Burton from Indiana, who had led the charge on investigating the link between vaccines and autism, based upon his own personal experience of his grandson, and many people will know this story. And one of his arch enemies on that committee was Henry Waxman from Hollywood. And Henry Waxman, as you will know, many of you will know, was one of the authors of the original 1986 National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act. And so they were deeply divided, not only on many other issues, but on this issue. And uh, on whether vaccines cause autism. Henry Waxman, a very smart politician, very clever man, and I had presented my testimony, my follow-up testimony, and then there was a presentation from Michael Gershaw, um, and he had been invited by Henry Waxman. Michael Gershaw is an eminent gastroenterologist, academic gastroenterologist working, I believe, at Columbia. And he had written a book called The Second Brain. And it was a, a book about the nervous system in the gut. And uh, the, I, I, it's not important for this, but he, his presence there was somewhat surprising. His wife had been involved in some of the early MMR vaccine safety studies. And so that was interesting. She was a I believe, a virologist. And he gave his testimony, which came as an enormous surprise to me. And his, his presentation was about the results of my study with Michael Oldstone and John O'Leary from the collaboration between the Scripps and Coombe Women's Hospital. And it present he presented data results that I, having <laughs> designed the study, having written the grant for the study, which received an excellent from the University of California, was peer-reviewed and awarded funding from the University of California with the designation of excellent. He presented the results to this committee, to the world, on C-SPAN. He presented the data from this study that I'd never heard before. I mean, it was one of the greatest shocks of my life. And it was appalling. You, you don't do this in science. You do not present someone else's data they've never heard. You, and you had no idea this was happening? Absolutely no idea. It was a complete ambush. It was brilliant, politically. Brilliant. Um, and somewhat devastating. 
And he presented the data and said, Professor Oldstone has broken the code on this study, which I'll describe to you in a moment, and has shown that there is contamination in John O'Leary's lab, that samples that should be negative for measles virus were positive for measles virus, not once, but twice, because the study was replicated. And therefore, John O'Leary's laboratory has no credibility. It cannot be used for the detection of measles virus because it is unsound. It is not credible because the samples are not giving the appropriate reading. So Henry Waxman, when, when Gershwin sat down, Waxman turned to me and said, so what do you think, Dr. Wakefield? <laughs> it's not often I'm lost to words, but I was on this occasion lost to words. I, you know, I've relived this moment many times, and I've kind of scripted what I loved to, would have loved to have said, which was sort of, this is an outrage presenting this kind of information to the world when the, the person who designed the study and the that study authors have not only given no permission, but had no knowledge that this was going to happen. Anyway, all of that's irrelevant because the impact of this was to have a huge effect upon the credibility of John O'Leary's lab. That was the intent. Was Absolutely, the, was the intent. That and, and was the precise so, intent. And so, it was very cleverly done in a political sense. It was outrageous in a scientific sense, but so what? They achieved their objective on, on, you know, which was broadcast effectively to the world, gone out on C-SPAN, and that was it. Now, you had published this paper already, correct? Mm. You had not no, published No, 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 this findings. was unpublished. These were unpublished. unpublished so how did he get this thing? Well, there's the question, you see. Now, this is, the, this is an extraordinary story, so hang in there. Right, here's the study. Let me describe the study to you. And tell our listeners, too, who, who aren't scientists, sort of what the process is. You do a study, you yeah, publish absolutely. usually in a peer-reviewed journal, right? Yeah. And then you'll go and present at a conference once you've published and released your data to the world, correct? That's the basic? That's, that's, that's the essence of it. So the study was this, that John O'Leary had this exquisitely sensitive technology for detecting, for example, measles virus genetic material in diseased tissue. Michael Oldstone, in his lab, had developed a transgenic mass, a sort of mutated mass, that had encoded into its gene the measles virus receptor, the human or the primate measles virus receptor. Now, measles is a primate virus. It doesn't infect subprimate species. So it'll infect monkeys, it'll infect apes, it'll infect humans. It will not infect subprimate species like mice. Mm. But if you take the human receptor for measles virus that allows it to get into cells and you encode that into the gene of these mice, mm -hmm. then you can do it. And that's what he'd done. And he produced some extraordinary studies showing that he could get infect selectively the brain of these mice or different tissues of these mice. So he had a model, a small animal model for looking at measles virus pathology, measles virus pathogenesis. So that's why we teamed these two people together, that there would be John taking these tissues, these extracts from Michael Oldstone. Michael Oldstone's laboratory would infect mice who had this measles receptor, and he would sham infect a control population of mice mm -hmm. without measles virus, and then he would isolate the genetic material from the cells of these animals he would give them a code number. 
he'd mix them all up, the controls and those that had the measles receptor with the measles virus exposure. He'd mix them all up. He'd send them to John, John O'Leary's laboratory with just that code number so that John O'Leary had no idea which ones were infected and which ones were uninfected. And he would analyze them using his exquisitely sensitive technology. And then he'd report the results back to Oldstone. And then Oldstone would send all of those same tissues all over again, all of those extracts all over again. And he'd mix them up and give them a different number. So John O'Leary would analyze them again and they'd send them back, the results back. And then they would see one, whether the results matched up from the two studies and two, whether John O'Leary had correctly identified those that were infected with measles and those that were not infected with measles. And at the same time, we were able to take the tissues and look down the microscope and see whether there was disease associated with the presence of measles virus in the intestine and the brain, for example. Sounds like a great plan. So it was a very sophisticated study and the University of California had given it an excellent and it was wonderful. And and so we did it, and these are the data that were presented. And they said, in these replicate studies, Michael Oldstone found that John O'Leary had got it wrong, that there was measles virus in samples that shouldn't have had measles virus. And so John O'Leary's lab, lab was no good. And that was bad news, because John O'Leary's lab, was being used to analyze tissues from children mm. in the American legal proceedings in the OAP. Hmm. So that really put a spike into those, the credibility of John O'Leary's lab in that context. And, and that, so that was the purpose. That clearly. was the absolute purpose from the very beginning. So how did all this come to pass? Was it true? What happened? So in a state of some surprise and shock, I returned to England and I flew to John O'Leary's home in Dublin. I sat down in his kitchen with him. I said, John, what has happened? This is what has just been presented. Of course, he was furious. Mm, John's a big fellow and he gets very red and he was furious. And he, because this was a terrible violation of scientific ethics. And we both knew the purpose of it. But what John had done is in his kitchen, he produced for me two extremely detailed spreadsheets from these two studies, the two replicate studies that had been done with Michael Oldstone. And in those spreadsheets, he had identified the decoded samples where you had the mice infected or uninfected and whether they were positive for measles virus or not, mm -hmm. and what the level of measles virus was in those samples. Because using his technology, you were not only able to say, is it there, yes or no, but how much of the starting material was there? Was it tiny amount? Was it lots of virus? So I had these two spreadsheets in front of me, and I sat down and I looked at these. And they were very, very interesting because what they showed is that there were samples that were contaminated. The vast majority of the samples that were meant to be positive were indeed positive, and all of those that were meant to be negative were negative, apart from a few. And of those samples that were positive, 
the virus was present, as we predicted, in tiny, tiny, tiny amounts, only detectable using John's exquisitely sensitive technology. And in both sets of data, they were present in the same mice, in the same tissues, in the same samples, at the same level. Tiny, tiny amounts. All of those results were entirely credible. And the vast majority of uninfected mouse extracts were negative, except a few. Now, here's the issue. Here's the clue to what was going on. In those samples, there were two different genes that were being measured. I think it was the hemagglutinin and infusion genes of measles virus. And these have unique sequences that allow you to determine not only whether it's there, but what strain the virus is. Mm. And John was looking for these two unique gene sequences from, I believe, the H and the F gene, the hemagglutinin infusion gene. The details don't matter too much, but it's a really interesting observation. That's what John used in his laboratory. And of those samples, the ones that were positive and contamination, according to Michael Oldstone, they were positive for both genes at very, very high levels, much, much, much higher than any of the other genes that were correctly identified. Much, much higher, absolutely off the chart. And this occurred on different days. So John would analyze, in one, on one day, he would analyze samples for the hemagglutinin gene, and another day they'd set up another study for the fusion gene. I said to John, do you do these on different days? He said, yes. And yet, there they were, contaminated apparently at very, very high levels, despite being done on different days. Now, statistically, that's really, really strange. And, and here's and, the other and thing. And rare, I would and guess. Very rare. Right? And even more strange was that if those two were positive at very high levels in different studies on different days, then that could only statistically have come from the presence of contamination in those samples with either total measles virus RNA or whole measles virus, not the presence of just the gene. This gets a little complicated, but bear I'm with, with me. I'm with you, I'm with you. Bear with me. So here's the issue with that is that John, in his laboratory, did not use whole measles virus RNA or whole measles virus. At he didn't all. use those. At what all. he used are these cloned sequences of measles virus for the H and the F gene. Those were his positive controls. Not, you see, in every, so every test you run, you use a positive control. You want to show that your test can detect measles virus at certain levels. So you either put in whole measles virus or you put in measles virus RNA that's been extracted, mm -hmm. or in John's case, you use something very different, and that is the clone fragments of just those tiny parts of the measles virus. From the transgenic from, mouse. From the, or from the H and the F gene. The those H are what you use. So here we had contamination that could only have come from the whole measles virus or the whole measles virus RNA. And therefore, that contamination could not have taken place in John's laboratory. Where would it have happened? That, that contamination must have taken place in Michael Oldstone's 
laboratory. In other words, the samples had been sent to John O'Leary already contaminated. From, it could from not scripts have in California. Absolutely. Which it, goes back to Waxman. It could not laboratory. have happened in John's lab. Mm. And I looked at the results and I, having asked John these questions, I put this to him. I said, John, this is not consistent with your laboratory being the source of the contamination. Mm -hmm. The contamination must have come from a laboratory where they used whole measles virus or extracted whole measles virus RNA. And that can only have been Michael Oldstone's laboratory. And do you think that was by accident? Was he fall or did he fall or was he pushed? Right. It's a very good question. So there is an answer to that. There's an answer to that. And that really leads me to the second part of this story. Oh, good. Tune in next week to the Andy Wakefield podcast, episode three, and find out about Michael Oldstone. Was he pushed or did he jump? You've been listening to the Andy Wakefield weekly podcast, a place where stories are being told that have never been heard before. This is a Seventh Chakra Films production in collaboration with Brick City Creative. Please follow and like us while you still can on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at 1986 The Act, and soon on Sphere.